Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'm joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, Colonel, never a shortage of interesting current events to discuss, and this week is no exception. Where would you like to begin? Well, congratulations to you and your daughter on your daughter's 14th birthday. Thank you. But we've had some very significant events this week, and I love that quote that we begin with by Ronald Reagan, where he says, our Constitution is a document in which we, the American people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. And the question that I think we ought to look at here today is, have we, the people, ever told the government that they are allowed to conduct a raid like they conducted on Miralago, the residence of former President Trump, last Monday, the 8th of August? Let's see what really happened first, and then we're going to look to some of the background here. But on the 8th of August, about 9 a.m., FBI agents, about 30 of them apparently, arrived at Mar-a-Lago. And when I describe what happened here, remember that some of these things are uncertain. We're hearing some conflicting reports, and there's a lot of places where we are filling in blanks because we're not entirely sure what happened. But... I'm going to try to give a recollection of what happened to the best of our knowledge at this point. But they arrived, and they supposedly had a search warrant, which they displayed, but they would not allow Trump's family or his attorneys to get closer than 10 feet to it, so they couldn't verify what it was. They then began to search the facility, and... In the course of that search, they refused to allow Trump's attorneys to be present to observe the search. They also instructed or ordered Trump's staff to turn off the security cameras, which they refused to do. So there likely is going to be some video record of what went on here, but that was over the FBI agent's objections. And anyway, so... That's basically what happened as we understood it. But as we look to this issue, we think about search and seizure. And some are saying that if they can conduct a search like this on the home of a former president of the United States, something that is utterly unprecedented in this country and that is typical of what happens in third world countries, if they can do that here, to the president, they can do it to any of us. So it is really an invasion of our rights and our privacy as well. And yes, I understand what they're saying. Some are gonna say though, if you have nothing to hide, if you're completely innocent, why should you object to a search? That's what a lot of people are gonna be thinking. And frankly, there was a time back in the 1960s when we had a threat to law and order in this country and I was firmly on the side of law and order and became a prosecutor at that time there was a time when that might at least partially reflect some of my thinking but 
I think we have to realize that the right to be secure in our property, in our persons, in our houses, in our effects, and so on, is a right that we value, and it is tyranny for a government to intrude on that right. Even if we have nothing to hide, we still don't want government rifling through our linen closet, and apparently they did go through Melania Trump's wardrobes and so on for what possible reason I can't imagine. And we don't want them going through our records and so on, our tax records, which supposedly are confidential that the IRS is not allowed to reveal with 87,000 new IRS agents being hired. There could be quite a threat to privacy and quite a potential for harassment there. But let's go back in history a little bit and let's look to why in the Anglo-American world, we have had a great deal of respect for this right to privacy. The great English jurist and prime minister, William Pitt, declared in 1763, the poorest man may in his cottage bid defiance to all the forces of the crown. It may be frail, its roof may shake, the wind may blow through it, the storm may enter, the rain may enter, but the King of England may not enter. All his forces dare not cross the threshold of the ruined tenement. That's how the English valued this right to be left alone by the government from illegal search and seizure. Well, let's see what was going on in America at this time. We had a problem, and this was a genuine problem that the English were concerned about, and that was smuggling goods. And to explain what was happening here, after years of benign neglect, in the 1700s, England began to assert authority over the colonies, when previously they'd kind of left the colonies alone. And they did so by imposing certain taxes that the colonists thought were unjustified, Part of the reason they thought they were unjustified is that they had no representatives in Parliament, and Parliament could only tax those areas where there was representation. Taxation without representation as tyranny was one of the slogans of the colonists. Now, among these tax acts were the Molasses Act of 1733, imposing a tax of six pence per gallon on the importation of molasses from non-British colonies, and the New England colonies in particular felt the burden of this taxation because they'd been trading regularly with the French, the Dutch, and Spanish West Indies. And the Molasses Act basically prohibited this by making molasses from non-British colonies so taxed that it was too expensive to be traded profitably. And so the colonists responded by relying upon smugglers to bring it in illegally and although it was illegal, they considered that they were avoiding a tax that they considered to be illegal and an invalid tax. So England responded to this by issuing what was called writs of assistance. Now, a writ of assistance, that's a term most of us aren't familiar with, but remember that, writ of assistance. A writ of assistance was a general warrant 
that allowed officials to search for smuggled goods in any premises in which they had any suspicion that the goods might be there. Now, it's been a cornerstone of Anglo-American common law, at least this is what the colonists argued, that special warrants were permitted, that is, warrant to search a particular place at a particular time, and only upon probable cause. Special warrants were permitted, but general warrants, that is, the order to search anywhere the officials want to search, were not. That is, they could obtain a specific warrant to search specific premises where they had probable cause to believe illegal items were present, but they had no authority to obtain a general warrant to search a premise in general or even beyond that. And putting that in today's terms, you might just say a police officer might obtain a warrant to search a particular house if he has probable cause, but he can't use that warrant to search the whole neighbor. This protection of the individual's rights to be secure was a basic right secured by common law law, considered by the English to be a vital defense against tyranny, and even more so by the colonists. Now, there's an important case that arises in 1761. A man by the name of James Otis, a lawyer, defending a case involving writs of assistance, these general warrants allowing them to search anywhere they want to search, and it's taking place in the Superior Court in Massachusetts. As an advocate general, kind of like the attorney general, you might say, or chief prosecutor for the, the Admiralty Court, James Otis's job was to defend these writs of assistance. But out of conviction, he resigned his position as advocate general and instead defended Massachusetts warrant or merchants who were being subject to these writs. Now, in the old state house there in Boston, he gave a five-hour oration about the dangers of writs of assistance. I'm not going to read that whole oration right now, of course, but he argued that they could lead to abuse, and here's part of what he said. In the first place, the writ is universal, being directed to all and singular justices, sheriffs, constables, and all other officers and subjects, so that in short, it is directed to every subject in the king's dominions. Everyone with this writ may be a tyrant. If this commission be legal, a tyrant in a legal manner also may control, imprison, or murder anyone within the realm. In the next place, it is perpetual. There is no return. In other words, there's no limit on when it may be served or used. A man is accountable to no person for his doings. Every man may reign secure in his petty tyranny and spread terror and desolation around him until the trump of the archangel shall excite different emotions in his soul. In other words, petty tyrants, little administrative officials, are free to do whatever they want under this. In the third place, Oda says, a person with this writ in the daytime may enter all houses, shops, etc. at will and command all to assist him. Fourthly, by this writ, not only deputies, but even their menial servants are allowed to lord it over us. What is this but to have the curse of Canaan with a witness on us to be servants of the servants, the most despicable of God's creation? And so he declared, now 
one of the most essential branches of English liberty is the freedom of one's house. A man's house is his castle, and whilst he is quiet, he is as well guarded as a prince in his castle. This writ, if it should be declared legal, would totally annihilate this privilege. Well, despite all that stirring already, Otis lost his case. You had royalist sympathizers judging the case there. But as this case proceeded, there was a young lawyer watching, sitting there in the courtroom observing this whole thing. His name was John Adams. John Adams, possibly the greatest scholar ever to sit in the White House, our second president. John Adams, years later, wrote about this case. And here's what he said about the significance of Otis's oration. He said, then and there, the child independence was born. In other words, the seeds of American independence were laid right there in that case involving what we today would call illegal search and seizure. Now, as a result of all of this, and many other things that led to this as well, in our Bill of Rights, we have a guarantee of a protection against illegal search and seizure. It's known today as the Fourth Amendment. You recall that the framers did not put a Bill of Rights in the original Constitution because they didn't think it was necessary, because, as Reagan would say 200 years later, our Constitution is a document in which the people tell the government what it may do. We don't need to tell them what they can't do. We give them delegated powers, and they can do only those things that we delegated them the authority to do. So it was thought, we don't need to limit their power by a Bill of Rights. We've already limited. They already have the limits. And unless we authorize them to do something, they don't have the authority to do it. But there were others who were concerned that government could forget about the common law rights of the people and so on, and that this could become an opportunity for abuse. The anti-federalists, the opponents of the Constitution especially, were concerned about this. And so this led to the promise that right after the Constitution was ratified, we would have a Bill of Rights. And so we have our Bill of Rights, and Article 4 of the Bill of Rights is the one that we're concerned about here. It says, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. We know that as the Fourth Amendment. We know it as the guarantee against illegal search and seizure. But as we look to what happened on August 8th, we need to consider what exactly does this guarantee mean? We talked about this before, but let's review. First of all, there is one word in the Fourth Amendment that ultimately all Fourth Amendment cases really boil down to. 
and that is the word unreasonable. Fourth Amendment does not guarantee against all searches and seizures. It guarantees only against those that are unreasonable. Some people are surprised to find that the Fourth Amendment does not say that there can never be a search without a warrant. But if you carefully read the language of the Fourth Amendment, you'll realize that, no, it doesn't actually say that. It says we are protected against unreasonable search and seizures. Then it goes on to say, no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause. But it doesn't say you have to have a warrant for a search. It would seem to indicate that, but that's not the actual language. And the way the courts have interpreted this is to say that any time a search is conducted without a warrant, there is a presumption that that search is unreasonable unless the government can overcome that presumption by showing what we call exigent circumstances, that is, special circumstances that might require that this search be issued or be conducted without a warrant. Common circumstance that we use for this is a search incident to a lawful arrest. You know, if an officer arrests somebody and he's going to take him down to the police station and book him, well, if the person is armed, he can pull a gun on the police officer while he's driving or at any point or at the station. If he has illegal drugs, he can smuggle them into the jail and so on. And so we see why there is a need to search somebody before we take them down to the police station for the officer's protection, for preserving evidence, for the protection of the general public. Now, the officer, though, can't say to this person that he's arrested, now, you know, I need to search you to make sure you don't have guns or drugs or something like that. And so what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to go down to the police station and I'm going to have to fill out a affidavit asking for a search warrant. I'll have to present that to the magistrate and magistrate will talk to me and read my affidavit. And if he concludes I have probable cause, he will issue the warrant. Then I'll come back here and I'll serve that warrant on you and I will search you. Now, in the meantime, you won't go away, will you? Obviously, that doesn't work. And so we say that a search or a lawful arrest is an exigent circumstance in which a search without a warrant is necessary. If you see an emergency, for example, you see smoke coming out of a house and so on, and you need to go in to make sure that there are people there that need to be that rescued and so on, you don't need to get a warrant in advance. That's an emergency. But those are few and far between. In the vast majority of cases, we need a warrant. Now, in order to get a warrant, and this is an absolute in the Fourth Amendment, in order to get that warrant, you have to have probable cause. Probable cause means evidence that the person or the place that you're searching has 
evidence of a crime. Has illegal documents, weapons, drugs, whatever it might be. You have to have probable cause. Probable cause simply means evidence that would cause a reasonable person to believe this is true. In other words, it is a lot more than mere suspicion. It means it's pretty likely, but it's something less than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Anyway, the officer needs to present that probable cause to a magistrate or judge, and that magistrate or judge will decide whether or not there really is probable cause. And then if he decides there is, he issues the warrant. Well, now, let's look at a little background here because we don't know everything that's gone on, but there has been some concern about the documents that were taken out of the White House, taken out at the time when President Trump and his family vacated the White House in January of 2020. And the archives, of course, wanted documents that they can store because they consider them to be of historic value. And they asked President Trump to go through the documents that he had in his possession to see whether or not the, the, there were things that would be of historic value. A year later, in January of 21, Trump officials notified the archives that they had some documents that they thought the archives might want. And so in January of 21, that is over a year ago, but a year after Trump left the White House, then they turned over some 15 boxes of documents. And they did this voluntarily. Now, in the course of going over these documents, the Department of Archives concluded that there are some there that might possibly have been classified documents. Now, they're not in a position to determine that because the president can declassify any document that he wants to declassify. We have cases involving President Nixon and the classification of documents where the court has said that the president does have the authority, but not unlimited authority, to classify documents. And if he's classified a document that people want access to and they think that he classified it only because he thinks it might be embarrassing, not because it might be a risk to national security, then there are procedures by which they can have the court take an in-camera or in-chambers look at that to determine whether it was justly classified or not. The president has the authority to classify documents, and but it's limited authority. But his authority to declassify documents, in other words, to take documents that were once classified and say these don't need to be classified anymore, that authority is unlimited. And so the Department of Archives has no basis for saying that these were classified or not, just thought maybe they were. And let's see where it goes from there after the break. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, and we are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
Colonel, I'm grateful to hear your take, not only on what happened Monday at uh, Mar-a-Lago, but uh, also the historical background about when, when searches and seizures are reasonable versus when they aren't. I have to admit, I've been trying to make sense of this and trying not to fly off the handle at the same time and read more into it than, than is actually in evidence. And I have to say, though, the very first thing that came through my mind when I heard, what, the FBI raided uh, Trump's home? I wondered, I wonder what evidence or what uh, information he might have had that uh, Democratic leaders absolutely would not want getting out to the public. And I don't know what that would be, but to me, that would justify something like what we saw happening. Just speculation on my part. Very good question. And we're not really sure what all this is, but apparently they were looking for documents that might be of value to the archives or that might have been classified documents. But with no probable cause to think that he has any classified documents. So far as we can tell right now, they were not looking for any documents that might have anything to do with the January 6th incident or that the January 6th commission wanted. It doesn't appear that the January 6th commission had any involvement in this at all as of right now. And again, we may find out a lot more. I'm just going based on what we know right now. Anyway, so... question is whether or not there was probable cause. We don't know that yet. And without seeing the search warrant itself, which Trump's attorneys were not allowed to see except from a distance of 10 feet and couldn't identify from that distance whether this was in fact a search warrant or if it was, whether it was a valid search warrant. So we don't know on that. But it did have to be issued by a neutral and detached magistrate. I don't think this was issued by a neutral and detached magistrate. From everything we understand right now, the judge who issued this warrant and who considered the affidavit and the evidence in doing so was a Judge Reinhardt. Now, Judge Reinhardt came on the bench as a magistrate in 2018, prior to that time, he had been a strong Democratic partisan, a strong supporter of President Obama, and made several substantial contributions to Obama's campaign, had issued several tweets very, very critical of Trump. Not only that, but as an attorney, before he became a magistrate, he defended the associates of Jeff Epstein, you know, the sex criminal that had arranged for sex with minors for quite a few high-profile officials. But this is the magistrate who issued the, the warrant, from what we understand. Assuming that's the case, I think we have very good reason to say he was not neutral and detached. He had had strong hostility to Trump personally. He had shown himself involved in causes that would be hostile to Trump. He was a strong Democratic partisan. For all of those reasons, when this affidavit was presented to him, he should have recused himself, saying that I am not neutral and detached. I cannot hear that. That alone may be a basis for quashing the whole warrant. But we'll just have to see what happens on that. Next thing is that we'd have to look at 
what the warrant authorizes. Well, before we look at what the warrant authorized, we'd have to look at what the evidence presented in the affidavit and any other testimony presented to Judge Reinhardt to see whether or not they had probable cause. And if so, that probable cause would authorize the search, but a search of what? How wide an area and so on. And then we'll need more detail as to what actually went on during the search itself. You know, one of the reasons why normally, if it's possible, you want to have your attorney present during a search. If your property is being searched, you want an attorney present so that the attorney can watch what they're doing and make a determination as to whether they are, in fact, going beyond your Fourth Amendment rights in doing so. As we said, Trump's attorneys were specifically forbidden from being on the scene while this warrant was being executed. The execution of this warrant, they apparently arrived at 9 a.m. without any advance notice. They left about 6 p.m., so they were there about nine hours. And that in itself is not necessarily that surprising. It takes some time to go through a place, especially a place as large as what President Trump has, to find records, go through, see what this might be something we want to see, this might not be, and so on. I mean, I could imagine how long it would take them to search my house and my office. And frankly, if you look to the condition of my office at home right now, <laughs> if they were to search my office, they'd probably leave it in better condition than they found it. A whirlwind would probably leave it in better condition than it found it. But at any rate, so that in itself is not necessarily surprising, but we want to know what they did during all, all that time. The very fact that, that the attorneys were not allowed to be present. You just think that if, let's say that they were, if they wanted to frame Trump by saying that he was in possession of illegal documents, that during this search, they could plant illegal documents and then seize them. That'd be very easy to do. Now, if Trump's attorneys were present to observe that, they'd be able to, to catch them on that. But without that, they can do whatever they want. Now, again, they ordered Trump's people there at Malago Largo. I'm not saying that correctly. I don't think the name of the place there, but they instructed his people to shut off the security cameras. That, again, would mean no record of what happened. Miralago, I guess is the way you say that. That, again, would mean no record of what happened. We're told that Trump's people refused to shut the cameras off. And so maybe that means that some record is going to be available. And if so, that could be very valuable. Point of all of this, though, is that was all of this really necessary? It's completely unprecedented searching a home of a president or a former president like this in this detail and especially in the midst of the current hostilities going on, especially in light of the fact that Trump and his people seem to have been fully cooperative with the archives people beforehand. All of this strongly suggests to me that this search may be illegal. 
And if it is, it'll probably be struck down and the evidence of it will not be releasable for most purposes at least. But again, all of this should illustrate to us just how important this right to be free of illegal search and seizure really is. Even if we have nothing to hide, we don't want the government coming in, going through our papers, conducting fishing expeditions. And by the way, this is the way sometimes law enforcement has tried to interpret this, is, okay, we were looking for drugs, we didn't have any probable cause to think there were drugs, but we got a hunch there might be. And if we go in there, we'll find some, and that'll prove it. It doesn't work that way. They cannot use what they find in a search to constitute the probable cause for the search in the first place. That's kind of like circular reasoning. Give me probable cause, and I'll give you a search warrant. The officer might say, you give me that search warrant, and when I search the property, I'll be able to find the probable cause. But any search could be justified under that circumstance, and our right to privacy in our homes would be of no value at all. That being the case, no, they have to have the probable cause. They have to have it in advance. The warrant has to be specific about the time, the place, the persons and so on to be searched and what they are searching for. And anyway, time will only tell whether or not this particular search is legal under those requirements. But I hope we all understand from this just why this is so important, why our right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure is vital to the nature of liberty itself. In fact, no matter how innocent you might be, very possibly if the, some government official has some reason for wanting to put you behind bars, if he searches through your property, what might he find? That you have removed the label from a mattress <laughs> or that you have broken the seal on a container or what might they find like that? That they could build a case against almost anybody if they really try hard enough. And we don't want to give government that kind of power. Anyway, that being said, Brian, do you have anything you wanted to ask us in regard to this whole issue of what happened on August 8th? Or if not, shall we move on to some other things? I do have one quick question, and and unfortunately, you've taken such a moderate and nice tone with this and not flying off on, you know, conspiracy theories. I don't want to blow that out of the water with, with a conspiracy theory, but it, it as, the, as this was reported by the news, it really seemed like this was, um, I've heard people refer to it as a Sicilian message of sorts. In other words, the D.C. establishment, if it wants to really show, look, we're serious, this is the kind of thing that they would do is... Um, like they did, I th- what was the guy's name? Roger Stone. Do you remember him uh, getting arrested? He was one of Trump's advisors. And when, when it took place, I mean, they came in and frog walked him out there in front of a SWAT team. And, you know, it was a big to do. But it was uh, it was really unnecessary. It was a very unnecessary show of force. But it was, I think, to send a message. That's the question on my mind is, is a message being sent? And if it is, I don't know exactly to whom or from whom, but it, it sure has an intimidation factor 
that would would make people think twice. And I think you alluded to that. Well, certainly. And part of the intimidation factor is probably there's a strong desire on the part of the Biden administration to ensure that President Trump does not run for office again. Now, I'm not saying at this point whether I think that he should be the Republican nominee in 2024 or not. We'll just have to see how things play out, particularly in the 2022 elections and in the months after that, before we decide what to do on that. But I think the Democratic Party and its leadership is very concerned about Trump being a candidate. And they want to do everything they can to discredit or even possibly disqualify him and prevent him from running. That's part of the motivation. But it may also be a threat to all the rest of us as well, that if you start contesting the elections, if you start being too critical of the president, here's what we can do to you. And now you think about Donald Trump. Donald Trump, even though he's not in office right now, he's a very powerful person. And whether he wins or loses, he certainly has the power to fight back. What if they broke into my house? Well, at least I'm a lawyer. I know something about law. and I can put up a legal defense. What about the average person out there? If they were to break into your house like this, what would you be able to do about it? Would you have to get a lawyer and in doing that have to spend every penny you've ever saved for retirement in order to do that? In other words, Trump can fight back. A lot of people would be utterly helpless in the face of this. So whether that is the intention or not, I'm not going to pass judgment on that right now because honestly, I don't know. But the possibility of intimidation is certainly there. And I cannot believe that that never entered the minds of those who authorized and conducted this search. What's pre- your thinking on that? Do you agree, Brian? I, I think I think you. Uh, I would trust your judgment on that. It it just uh, given the political climate, you know, the hiring of eighty seven thousand new IRS agents. I, I know we're supposed to believe, Colonel. They're just they want to help us, <laughs> but it doesn't feel so helpful. It feels more like uh, they're there to uh, keep us in line, more so than help. Eighty-seven thousand agents who are going to do nothing but audit people who make more than four hundred thousand dollars a year. That's utterly ridiculous. Now we are going to feel the effects of this. We're going to be paying the costs of it, and the promises that were made that no taxes go up for the average person. Well, they aren't telling us which taxes they say are not going to go up. They're some types that are, some types that aren't. Gas taxes are going up, and we all pay those, and all sorts of other taxes are going up that we are paying part of. And you look to the increased gas prices, we're all paying those increased gas prices. And now, of course, within the last month or so, we've started to see those prices go down. And they're down now probably 70 to 80 cents a gallon from what they were back six, eight months ago. And well, President Biden was telling us earlier, this is all beyond my control. It's Putin's fault (laughs) or it's the fault of the local gas stations, things like that. Now that they've gone down a little bit, he's taking credit for their going down. 
Well, if he's taking credit for gas prices going down, he is saying, I have the power to control this. And if he has the power to control this, why did he let them get so high in the first place when he first took office? He has been having us suffer from these extraordinary gas prices for most of the first two years of his term of office when he's now saying, I have the power to bring it down all the time and I didn't do it until now the election's coming up. No, I think we should realize just how much control the federal government has over these things and how much we are pawns in their hands. And that should certainly cause us to fight back in every legal way we can and should also cause us to get involved in the campaigns here in 2022 and make sure that this radical clique of Democrats who <coughs> control the White House and control the media and control Congress, that at least they won't have control of Congress after the 2022 elections are over. And certainly we need to be working toward that. Well, just to be safe, I think I'll write a thank you note to both Biden and to Putin for those lower gas prices and try not to think about what the cost was just a year ago <laughs> or two years ago. <laughs> well, I wouldn't write him a note of thanks to him because, like I say, he could have very easily taken care of that problem much earlier by releasing production and so on and, and some of these things he had tied up earlier. No, I, I don't think any thanks are due to him. In fact, I'd like to send him a bill. Somebody said recently that <laughs> one of the things he was going to do to help us in this area with the gas prices is he was going to station grief counselors at the gas pumps. <laughs> but, but Well, in the moments that are left, let's go back to what we have been talking about. And that has been the precepts of Hebrew law. And as we've seen, our system of government has been greatly influenced by Mosaic law. In fact, it's fair to say Moses, of course, he was under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but Moses is the greatest lawgiver this world has ever seen. And his laws and his legal system have affected not only ancient Israel, but they've affected the Christian world, they've affected the Muslim world, whether they want to admit it or not, and they have affected much of the rest of the world as well. And our legal system is based on some of the premises of Hebrew law. And let's go back over just a quick review of some of those. First of all, that God exists, that he is one God, that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, that he is perfectly righteous and just and truthful, that he is unchangeable, but that he is also a loving God and is Wines wrote, E.C. Wines and his laws of the ancient Hebrews. All of the ancient lawgivers called in the aid of religion to strengthen their respective politics. Thus did Menes in Egypt, Minos in Crete, Cadmus in Thebes, Lycurgus in Sparta, Seleucus in Locris, and Numa in Rome. But the procedure of Moses differed fundamentally from that of the heathen legislators. They employed religion in establishing their political institutions, well, Moses made use of a civil constitution as a means of perpetuating religion. Thus, Moses made the worship of the one only God 
the fundamental law of his civil institutions. This law was to mean forever unalterable through all the changes which lapse of time might introduce into his constitution. One God. Secondly, that God is the source of all true law. As Isaiah says in 33:22, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. You see the three branches of government, judicial, the Lord is our judge, legislative, the Lord is our lawgiver, executive, the Lord is our king. You see those three branches of government all together there in Isaiah 33:22. But the laws come from God. He is the source of all true law. The law, therefore, re reflects the will and the character of God. God didn't just set up a bunch of precepts up there in the sky somewhere. The laws reflect his character. As the psalmist says, Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Paul tells us the law is holy, just, and good. Fourth, that God's justice requires punishment for sin. Ezekiel 18 tells us the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And God is perfect righteousness, and he is also perfect justice. And because he is perfect justice, he does not and cannot overlook sin. Just simply write it off. Sin has to be paid for. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And of course, as Christians, we know that Christ paid that penalty for us on the cross. God didn't just write it off. He had it paid in full through the death of his son. But God's justice requires punishment for sin. Fifth point, man is created in God's image. Being created in God's image, human life is precious. Being created in God's image, we're not just like other creatures of God. We're not just like the animals. Rather, God has given us dominion over the animals, given us the responsibility to take good care of them, but also the right and privilege to use them for the development of a Christian civilization. But because man is created in God's image, his life is of infinite value. And so we read in Genesis 9, 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. In other words, we punish murder with the death penalty, not because life is cheap, but because life is precious. And therefore, the taking of human life requires punishment. Another thing we see is that ever since the fall, man has been and continues to be sinful. We see in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. We see in Isaiah 53, 6, 
all we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because we are sinners and need punishment, that's why we need a criminal justice system. And we'll continue more about that next week. Thank you.